So please, uh, if there's any particular questions arising from the things that I said or other uh, questions on this same theme that uh, you've brought along with you, um, then uh, feel most welcome to ask. Uh, I'd ask, uh, we have a second microphone, but, uh, so that uh, if people want to ask a question, if you can wait till the microphone reaches you so then everyone can hear the question and uh, it can be uh, recorded as well. Uh, well, a very simple question, well, a short one actually. Uh, what is the difference between mindfulness and concentration? Well, it depends how you define mindfulness. <laughs> the, um, yeah, I would say that um, the way that you know, classically people use the word concentration is that you're paying attention to a, a single object. So, like, so, uh, if it's um, a uh, say a, con uh, a uh, concentration meditation, then you're taking a single object, like the uh, the feeling of the breath, to to focus the attention upon. Um, mindfulness is uh, in itself it involves a broader range. So, you, like mindfulness of the body. Um, can involve you know, paying attention to the, the movements of the body, standing, walking, sitting, lying down, uh, acts of you know, bending and stretching, reaching, um, and so forth. So that um, uh, within mindfulness there is an element of, of concentration. Uh, they, they all work together. Um, as I said, the uh, samadhi and sati are both uh, factors of enlightenment, so they're, they're there in the mix together. But the 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 act of, of concentration, or you know, samadhi, as in literally meaning a correct holding. It's the, the capacity of the mind to to put itself on a, a single object and and not wobble from that. So then, mindfulness is like uh, even a non-reflective kind of mindfulness has a a broader range of uh, uh, of objects. So you can be mindful of running. You can be mindful of um, sort of eating a uh, a meal, uh, whereas uh, you know, the concentration is is it's generally more uh, referring to a more you know, tightly focused singleness of of object. But it's the kind of thing people would define it in different ways. But that's how I understand it. There's a question at the front here. Yes. Um, I, uh, this is not kind of not uh, relevant with the mindfulness, but I just wanted to ask, um, since uh, our, the recent Buddha we've had, which was uh, Siddhartha and, uh, sorry, um, since we have the, um, sorry, I'm kind of nervous here, sorry, um, we had a Prince Siddhartha who became uh, the Buddha we have recently, now he's gone, um, since he was the 27th Buddha, who, what did the other Buddhas do, do, do before he came? <laughs> sorry. Well, I mean, uh, like, sorry. Um, this could be a long session. It's kind of... Sorry, it kind of it bugged me for a while. Um, I was just thinking, you know, what, what, uh, what did they do? Did they uh, either refound or did they? I don't know. Well, the according to the the Buddha's description of um, the 
the way that things work is that each Buddha that comes into the the universe, um, they appear when all memory of the 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 teaching and the practices of the previous Buddha have vanished, that they've uh, faded away. And it's only when the uh, the sort of the the all of the effects and the memory of the of the last Buddha have gone, then the next Buddha appears in the world after that time. So, according to the suttas, you only ha the Buddha only mentions uh, six Buddhas previous to him: uh, uh, the uh, Vipassi, Sikhi, Vesabhu, uh, Konagamana, Kakusanda, and Kasapa, and then he's the seventh. Then, in the other Buddhist literature, the commentaries, and that they talk about um, another. Uh, 20, uh, 21 or 22 prior to that, and then other, and then you have different accounts with, with uh, hundreds of Buddhas. But uh, either way, it's always the same. That the, uh, a Buddha only appears in the world once the, the memory and uh, the effects of the previous Buddha's teachings have gone. So each Buddha uh, is enlightened according to their own understanding. They're, they're not guided by the teachings of the previous Buddha, but they awaken to to the truth. Um, on their own uh, initiative through their own understanding and investigation. Got any other questions? Yeah, there's a, if you can wait for the microphone. My question is, um, now, what is the difference between mindfulness meditation and transcendental meditation? There is research based on transcendental meditation as well as mindfulness breathing related meditation so according to Theravada Buddhism, is it an acceptable form of meditation? Of course, it, is it related to mindfulness? Can you please explain about it? Uh, well, I, I don't have any experience of transcendental meditation as a practice myself. Um, but my understanding is it's a, a kind of mantra meditation. And so therefore a, a straightforward concentration practice. Um, so I, I couldn't... Uh, speak to, to TM itself, but I, I know from much of the research, both done on, on concentration practices uh, and uh, mindfulness meditation, that there are all sorts of uh, beneficial uh, results from that. I was at a, a conference with the Dalai Lama in um, uh, Washington, D.C. a few years ago, five or six years ago, and it was called uh, The Science and Clinical Applications of Meditation. And it talked about the various different um, uh, medical research that had been done, some, some on, on heart disease, some on depression, and different kinds of meditation. Some of them were concentration practices, others were things like the development of compassion or visualization and such like. So, and there's quite a lot of research in the Buddhist world that's been done on that. And I, I was describing that, that curve. That's just for, for um, papers published on mindfulness. But you have uh, quite a lot of studies done on uh, the effects of concentration practices and visualizations and, and so on. Um, I know particularly the, p the people in America um, who've been involved in this, uh, a um, professor called uh, Dr. Richie Davidson in um, Madison, Wisconsin, who's been very active in that, and a, a researcher called Alan Wallace, who used to be a Buddhist monk and is now um, runs an institute for consciousness studies in uh, on the west coast of America. And also, it was, it was interesting that this uh, conference was uh, initially sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, like the, the American government branch of, <coughs> like the kind of the, the American version of the National Health Service. 
they sponsored that uh, and, and were going to host the conference with the Dalai Lama. Again, the Christian bloc got a bit agitated, so <laughs> we had to move out of the NIH premises and, and it was uh, eventually um, held at a, a different place. But it was, uh, uh, it was a lot of the people involved were in the American medical profession. So it's been um, different kinds of meditation and the development of concentration and mindfulness have been shown to be helpful for uh, particularly heart uh, and stress-related conditions and very demonstrable effects, and then also nowadays, particularly on depression, uh, since uh, 2007, as I was mentioning. But uh, for TM, you have to speak to somebody who knows more about that directly. Sorry, any other questions? Don't be shy. There's one here. think there's been a better understanding of depression and mental health issues you know since people like Mark Williams and um, John Sabat Ken that's right isn't it yeah have started to make an awareness of it over the last few years I think it's improved you know like situations like anybody who's at work and um, just generally really yeah, it's, well, it seems to have an, an enormously powerful effect. As I was saying, the, obviously st statistics can be massaged, <laughs> and uh, they're not the whole story. But uh, it was in, it was just the whole the dynamic of it was because you, particularly coming to to Britain and just seeing the um, the prevalence of of, uh, uh, of mindfulness being spoken about, that whole movement of teaching mindfulness in schools. When John Kabat-Zinn was here. Earlier this year, he was he was invited to Ten Downing Street to give a, do a workshop at Ten Downing Street in the House of Lords as well. So uh, you know th this is kind of uh, astonishing. It makes your <laughs> your eyes pop open. With a, I don't know if, if Cameron was actually present at John's workshop, but it was certainly <laughs> he was at number ten. I mean, he was at Cameron's home. <laughs> so. <laughs> so um, yeah, that uh, to me, it's it, it's because there's an, uh, demonstrable effects that it's being picked up and people are interested in it. And and certainly with depression, those the figures that they they got from those studies and have been uh, shown to be uh, uh, re uh, repeatable, you know, over and over again. It points to the fact that it's not just a uh, a um, a kind of clever way of treating it, but also it's through, in a sense, understanding the workings of the mind more directly and, and not being so much of a victim, but recognizing that you can steer your mind. You're not just a, a victim of your thoughts and your feelings, but you can steer, you can take action, and you can change your mind. And uh, with it, and it's, it's also interesting how that in the last number of years that people have recognized that it's not just changing your thought patterns, you're actually changing the hard wiring of your brain, what they call neuroplasticity, is uh, another buzzword <laughs> of the current times. But it, it's, it's not just changing your, um, your thinking patterns, it's actually you can now, because they've got the, the, ga the, the gadgetry, the, the, the means to, to map different uh, areas of development and how parts of the brain are formed, 
that if you steer your mind in a certain way, that that you are you literally develop certain areas of the brain much more acutely and and visibly, tangibly than than uh, than other areas. So that you're literally changing the way that your brain is wired. And and again, the in that sutta, the um, the two kinds of thinking sutta. The Buddha says in a very direct way, which is you know, exactly the, the, the basis of cognitive therapy, is you know, that which the mind frequently thinks about will become you know, a well, the well-worn track that the mind follows. You know, if, you think, if you continually think about it and dwell upon it, that is the, the direction that the mind will head. It's, it's not rocket science. <laughs> it's, it, in a way, it's, it's a common sense. But but as he spells it out, you know, the more that you think in that direction, if you're if you're really interested in gambling, you're fascinated by gambling, you will you will incline towards seeing opportunities to gamble. If you're not interested in gambling, if you just if I, as I say those words and you think gambling, who's interested in gambling? <laughs> then you know that that's not your 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 issue. <laughs> but then. But then cooking, whoa, well, I mean, that's totally different. That's something else altogether. I mean, that's, but, you know, the, the, um, if the mind dwells upon cooking and food, then when you, you, you know, you flip through a magazine, then what you see are the recipes and the, the food opportunities. Um, because that's what you, you've invested in. You've given it strength. You've given it life. If you invested in, in, in gambling, then you see the, the, uh, the, the, um, the competitions. <laughs> Yeah, the lucky draw, you know, the, and that your eye latches on that. You miss the recipes altogether. You know, if you're interested in meditation, then you you see that ah, there's a Buddha image. Wow, what's that about? You know, so that you, uh, it's a very simple comment that the Buddha makes. You know, that which the mind frequently dwells upon, you know, that becomes the inclination and disposition of the mind. So, if you see that your mind is inclined towards things that are destructive and harmful. And this is like the basis of cognitive therapy and the working, the working with depression. That if you see, oh, there goes the mind, that train of thoughts that's saying, I'm no good, I'm useless, I'm hopeless, I'm never going to get out of this, I'm always going to be uh, a, a, a pathetic and, and hopeless person. The mind that can say, oh, that's not reality, that's a train of thought. That, that shift, that, that's, the, that's the, the choice of seeing that thought structure, that thought pattern, in a different way. And so, just in a way giving, it's not exactly giving people permission, but just saying like, in a way like, you realize you've got a car in the garage and, he, and the keys are in your pocket. <laughs> you know, you've got a vehicle that you can use, you can just get in it and drive it. It's, it's there and available for you. It's like, oh look at that, I can see that it's just a thought. It might have validity, it might not, but actually in this moment it is just a thought. And if I recognize that's a pattern of thought, and I can choose to believe in it or not, I can choose to invest in it or not. And then also recognizing, I've, in my entire life, I've assumed that because it goes through my mind, it must be true. And that's one of the, the most, in a way, the most helpful shifts of, uh, of whereby the whole process works. It's, and in a way, it's very helpful for those of us who are spend our, most of our lives living in our heads, <laughs> And believing in concepts is the 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 simple realization that just because I think it doesn't mean it's true. Okay, I'll say that again. Just because you think it <laughs> doesn't mean it's true. But for most of our lives, we we make the assumption that if a, th a thought passes through our heads that says that's good or that's bad or uh, 
uh, I want more, you know, I need more of that, you know, I can't stand the other, that we, we, we think that statement and we take it to be an absolute reality. And then just a recognition of, oh, well I know that uh, the rea that, you know, that, that is a thought. <laughs> Whether it has a relationship to, to a, an objective truth or not is another thing. But I know that's a thought. And as soon as you recognize that's a thought, then you have a, that capacity to, to work with it. If you don't recognize it's a thought, if you think it's just a representation of absolute truth, then <laughs> you, you, there's, there's no wiggle room. So these, these therapies and, and the, the, the way that the mindfulness trainings in the Satipatthana Sutta and the Dvedavitaka Sutta, the two kinds of thinking, these kind of practices are just the, the, the voice of the Buddha saying, look, <laughs> you've, got some, you've got some choices here. Yeah, and that uh, if you make wise choices, then you get really beneficial effects. It's not complicated. Mm. And if you don't make those choices, then what, what can be the result except following along the, the same conditioned patterns? Anybody from this side? We have a lot of preponderance. Of, uh, statistically, this side is more inquisitive than that side. So. Okay, one more from here. Go. Precise. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's uh, this this fellow then. Yeah. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks a lot for the talk. Um, I want to ask, um, I apologize if it's too broad or something, um, but your, your, your talk um, and many things I've heard and read in Buddhism in the last months, I don't know, is very much in accord with uh, scientific inquiry in a way. You, know, you talked a lot about you know, research and, and things. And I wanted to ask in your view uh, of mindfulness or Buddhism in general, I mean, um, is that the whole, you know, picture of a, of a concept like, like mindfulness? I mean, can we really look at mindfulness in Buddhist eyes uh, without any transcendent or even spiritual um, point of view? I mean, can we really look at it, you know, as, a, as like a cogn only, I mean, as a cognitive, you know, like a cognitive discovery of the Buddha. Um, yeah. Well, you can, you can look at it that way. I'd say that, as I was addressing in the talk, that the word mindfulness is used to, to refer to different things. So there is the, the simple quality of sati, like putting the attention on a particular action. Um, but that can be a, like the, the mindfulness of a cat hunting a mouse or the mindfulness of a squirrel jumping through it. You could be, a, yet you drive very carefully. But the, the kind of mindfulness that is most helpful and is most liberating and really brings our life to a quality of fulfillment is much more comprehensive than that. The, the, what I would call holistic mindfulness uh, is where you are including not just the, the, the element of sampajanya, like that. The taking into the, the the time, the place, the situation, and the the element of conduct and virtue, but also that uh, 
when it's the mindfulness conjoined with wisdom, satipanya, there's a natural uh, transcendent element to it. I think that people are a bit allergic to to, to the idea of transcendence and that you know sort of hard science. They don't like those kind of things. Um, but uh, they, uh, the actuality, it's it's interesting. You know, in the way that the Buddha. Uh, manifested in his own life that moment to moment he was extraordinarily mindful so you know they say he was uh, incredibly attentive every every action every word was perfectly suited to the time the place the situation he was very thoughtful he was very creative incredibly caring and and wise and yet he um so he was completely present and attuned to the situation and creative in his thoughts and responses like Come bringing the whole set of teachings over 45 years into being, establishing the monastic order, laying down this massively intricate sets of rules for the nuns and monks, and you know, establishing a vast, vast variety of, of teachings. Um, so extraordinarily, finely attuned to the, the, the practicalities of the world and, and, uh, and living, uh, but also that he was, uh, had totally transcended the world. He was completely liberated from attachment to the body and to identification with his thoughts, his feelings, and so on. So you have this mysterious mixture of both a, uh, a complete presence, an imminence, and a total transcendence simultaneously. If you just want the, the presence without the transcendence, it's the, I would say, in my understanding of how things work, is that it's only half the picture. It's only a fragment of it. And that... The, the Buddha principle embodies uh, that quality of, of total attunement and also total abandonment. Now, to our thinking mind, it seems like the opposite. Just like in the, the factors of enlightenment, how can you be totally tranquil and totally energized at the same time? How can you have pasadi and virya? They seem to be opposites. How can you have dhamma vijaya and concentration? How can you be reflecting on the nature of reality and, 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 and recognizing patterns and still have samadhi at the same time. How can you do that? You know, they seem to be opposite, but actually they work together. And so similarly, in the, the, the Buddha, uh, uh, in also the way he manifested, also in the word that he chose for himself, the way he referred to himself was, he called himself the Tathagata. So that seems to be a word that he coined, that he invented that word. And people have been debating for a millennia about what that uh, exactly uh, uh, implied or, or meant because it's made up of two parts to get a little bit of buddhist etymology so the word tat is um is spelled like the english word that t-a-t-h tat so it can be tat mean and it means means thus or such and so tata means thus or such and then the second part of the word is it's either uh, agata, which means to uh, to come, or gata, which means to go. The A is a negation. So gachami, like buddhang saranang gachami, I go to the Buddha for refuge. Gachati is the verb to go. So gata means uh, gone. Agata means come. So the, uh, the debate has gone on. Did the Buddha uh, coin this word to mean gone to suchness or come to suchness? Is he thus gone or thus come? Is he totally here or is he totally gone? 
Now, the Buddha was very fond of um, double meanings and word plays. If you, if you speak to somebody who studied the Pali Canon, who's actually grown up speaking uh, Hindi or Sinhala or knows Sanskrit, the, the Pali Canon is riddled with word plays and puns. Most of the English translations miss a lot of that um, because most of the English translations, their first languages are not the Indian languages. But speaking with, with uh, Indian scholars or, or Sri Lankan uh, scholars in particular, they say it's, it's all over the place, throughout the canon. They're, they're quite funny. Like There's a lot of jokes in there. You wouldn't think that the, you know, the Pali canon is a kind of laugh a minute. <laughs> but there's, there's a lot of punning. The Buddha, the Buddha was a real punster. You know, he, he liked double meanings and, uh, and trick words and playing on, on alliterations and so on. He did a lot of that. And my, another of my pet theories is that he deliberately coined the word Tathagata to have a double meaning. That it means deliberately both thus gone and thus come, completely present and totally gone. But you know, if the, if the sort of scientific rationalists want to hold out and say, transcendence, pa, you know, I spit on your transcendence, then that's their business, you know. May they be happy with that attitude, but uh, it won't change the reality. <laughs> and then, yeah, then the whole process of developing mindfulness and, and wisdom is, is digging in deeper and deeper and discovering what that reality is for each one of us. So, you have a question over here. If you can put that, I think you need to switch that on. May I come back to depression? Yes. Um, I presume if somebody agrees to take part in cognitive behavioral therapy, um, then would they be taken off all medication they are on? I'm, I'm not sure, actually. I think it would vary from um, the, uh, the particular medical situation. Um, I, my understanding is that um, many of the people who are using the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, MBCT, for depression, that they, uh, they do come off medi all medication. Uh, I'm not sure, though. There may be some people here a bit more knowledgeable uh, of the field. But my understanding is that, um, they, uh, that as that treatment and that process is developed, then they would, they would end medication. And it's, it's interesting, that I didn't realize this until I came back to Britain from the States about three years ago, was that a large number of, uh, of national health um, psychological services, they, they prescribe this kind of meditation, a mindfulness meditation, more than, than the, the medicine. Because A, it's cheaper, and B, it's more, and it's more effective. And so more and more areas around the country, this is, that, that's the, the treatment so that Again, people won't be prescribed the medicine because it's also uh, uh, more economical. <laughs> but uh, I, I couldn't speak from, from uh, complete experience. There might be that some people, they, they combine both of them. But uh, maybe somebody is knowledgeable of the field. If, yeah. if you're deeply depressed, you won't accept another course. You'll wipe the period of remission. Uh -huh. 
that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. So, must be a question from this side. Yes, down in the corner. If you could wait for the microphone to pass over. Yeah, also I should, I'm by no means an expert in the field and I've just been finding out a bit more about it since coming back to Britain because it's a bit more advanced over here than in the States, even though it's a, um, John Kabat-Zinn started his programs in, uh, in Massachusetts uh, quite a long time ago and I've certainly been connected with a lot of people on the West Coast. Um, but it's it's more widespread and has filtered through different more areas of the culture here in Britain than it has in the U.S. so far. And then, um, then being at that conference in, in Rome was a sort of full immersion in the uh, in that experience. But also the um, <coughs> the the um, opportunity I've had to meet a few other people like Mark Williams and then um, Chris Cullen, I think from um, Mindfulness in Schools. There's been helpful conversations that I've had. Yeah, please. Uh, this is a question about ethics. Um, I've heard John Kabat-Zinn say that um, mindfulness uh, in some form is being taught to the US Marines. <laughs> and from a Buddhist perspective, I just wonder, can that work? Or is it an amazing piece of subterfuge? <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Um, the, if you Google um, mental fitness training, it's quite uh, startling. That's the, the terminology that's used in the U.S. military for this sort of mindfulness training programs in the, the Army and the Marines in particular. Mental fitness training. So um, to me, it's, it's more helpful that if soldiers are more mindful than not mindful. It's <laughs> but uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that is a, um, there's going to be benefits that come from that. I think there can be a, a lot of. Um, it's it's not a it's not a black and white issue. It's not a, it's not a, a simple um, uni unidimensional issue. And I think it's uh, it's important to bear in mind that there are sort of complex elements to the whole picture. Um, as but I was, as I was saying during the talk, I, I feel that when, the more comprehensive that mindfulness becomes the more it brings in a, a, an, in, a, an innate moral element and that uh, uh, that the more that you are attuned to a situation you can't switch off the fact that you know like the say that the cat or a predator naturally has no compassion for the uh, the the animal or the the, the, the thing that they're they're hunting that they're catching that's how they that's their instinct but as human beings we have a reflective capacity and the more there's a, a full attunement to the situation, you can't switch off the fact that that's a living being, uh, that just like you, and that you know, why is your life more important than theirs? <coughs> the, there's those um, elements are in the mix. Um, so, and it has been in the past that the you know, Buddhist teachings have been. I'm again, I'm not an expert in the field, but uh, if you read Brian Victoria's book called Zen at War. He talks, uh, which is a very interesting book. He talks a, a lot about some of the background of, particularly in Japan, the sort of spiritual uh, qualification for militarism, and what was called bushido, or the way of the sword, and how back in, in a few hundred years ago, when there was a, the samurai, um, the, the samurai caste were, were uh, very powerful and um, 
sponsoring the monasteries, then it became along the way. Then the monasteries sort of were being asked to sort of <laughs> provide spiritual backup and qualification for the the samurai way. So again, uh, I would say you know just as the Buddha did. You know, Mindfulness is beneficial in all situations, and it's better to have mindful soldiers than unmindful soldiers. <laughs> yeah, just in terms of that, the more you develop mindfulness in a genuine way, the more that you will be seeing your actions and their results. You'll be able that those the the implications of karma and its effects will become closer to the surface, and you'll make your own make your own decisions um, about whether you want to stay in the military or, or not. Or, or, or how, what role you want to have in protecting your country, or the, 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 how you are involved. But along the way, and, and, and studying some of those texts that came out of the the, um, the Zen tradition, in terms of, of backing up the the samurai and the, the way of the sword, I would say along the way that they completely distorted the Buddha's teachings in some respects. So that the kind of some of the teachings where the Buddha is in the in the Pali Canon, where he highlights something as totally wrong view, like when I my my, my sword pass when the sword passes through the neck of somebody, it's only the the it's passing through the spaces between the atoms. Therefore, no being is actually killed. Yeah, and he's that representing that as a a philosophical teaching of of an, a, a different sect in his time, and saying this is totally wrong view, and so that. Um, in some of those texts that are, are quoted out of that, the tradition in in, uh, in Japan, of uh, how the you know the swordsman with with perfect and acute mindfulness, you know, the the attention fixed on the blade, there is there is no sword, there is no opponent, there there is only emptiness, you know, and the sword going through the neck of the the opponent, there is, there's only suchness here, suchness there, it's all it, it's all you know, empty of substance. Uh, I would say right there, <laughs> they have completely distorted the Buddha's teaching. So I would say in that particular instance, and, if I, and I apologize if I'm not quoting that accurately, but I, I think I am, fairly, that that would be like taking a, a, um, a, a sort of philosophical teaching, saying it's in accordance with, with Buddhist reality, and using it to, to say, um, well, killing isn't really killing. But what you have from the, from the Pali Canon is like the Buddhist says no <laughs> that's that's wrong view and that's taking of life and that's against the first precept and that uh, that that uh, uh, that's a distortion You're using philosophical sophistry to distort the reality because as far as the other person's concerned they're dying <laughs> and they don't want to die you know? and that you're using kind of mental gymnastics to to qualify what is your own particular stance or your own particular approach but it's but it's interesting that in in a country like Thailand, because I had very simplistic and and black and white views about militarism and the military in the world. I was very much a pacifist, and you know, anybody who was in, in in the army or the armed forces, um, I just would look down upon that and think, you know, how could people do that? We should all love each other, and so on. And uh, and yet, um, it was interesting being close to Thailand and, and seeing how Buddhism functions in the, within a country and seeing uh, how Thailand operated with, in respect to its own military and military activity in that they have a policy of protecting, they have an army you know, and it's, it's substantial 
and they have a policy of protecting their borders. They have a, a non-aggressive policy, but they will protect their borders because they see the point of having an army is to protect the citizens of their country. And if at one point they had um, guerrilla activity on five different borders, you know, from Malaysia, from Laos, from Cambodia, from different areas of Burma, and so they had, uh, you know, and still do and to some extent, they, they have a need to, to protect their citizens. And that's an, that the way that they can they can do that most effectively is through having an army. So I'm not I'm not condoning violence, but when you expand your view rather than well how I run my life and what I do in my household or in my monastery, <laughs> to okay well how do you run a country? How do you how do you uh, look after a whole population? And, and I, I and I realized as I sort of began to think in broader terms like yeah. I've got a very um, sort of monochromatic <laughs> approach to this, and, and it's it's a much more complex issue. Also, it was interesting being in Thailand, finding that that some of the most moral and uh, and thoughtful people you met were high-ranking military officers, and often people who are um, that uh, most um, say um, understand or people who got promoted. In, in the in the army, in particular, were people who that you you won promotion because you were a responsible and morally mature person. Kind of interesting, huh? And so, um, also that the Thai government every ten years, people in the military and in the civil service get three months paid leave to go into the monastery, for women as well as men. So you want to go and be a nun for for three months? If you say if you were a, a colonel in the in the army, or you're in the police, or you are a, a civil servant, every ten years you get three months paid leave to go into the monastery. So the 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 country sees it's more helpful, you know, that the 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 support for the welfare of the country is benefited by people spending time meditating and reflecting on Buddhist teachings. So of course the first precept is still there, and you can't kill. And and be in accordance with the first precept. For whatever reason, there's that you, there's no wiggle room. <laughs> there's no sort of qualifying clauses. It's panati pata. Yeah. Um, but it's like the the precept is there, but people make their own choices. And often, what happens is that sometime will somebody will will spend a you know twenty thirty years in, in the army, then they'll come out and they'll go into the monastery. And that uh, okay, they've they've done their they see their time in the army as serving the country, and then they, they, that time is over, and then they they uh, use that uh, their retirement or their you know their their post military time to 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 develop their spiritual life more directly. So this is all very surprising and unexpected to me, and uh, and so I, but I could uh, at first I was getting a lot of well how does that work. <laughs> But then you, you see, on a kind of idealistic level, it doesn't really work. But on a human level, on a moment-to-moment -moment level, you realize, well, yeah, that uh, someone, if they, their intention in joining the, the army or being part of that is to protect the country. If they reach a certain point and they say, I can't give orders for people to, to kill, uh, I can't pull a trigger myself, I can't give orders for others to kill, then they they can make a choice. They can say, "Okay, um, spiritually, it's impossible for me to do the job I have been doing. Uh, is there some other way I can, uh, some other role in the service I can have, or it's time for me to step out of the service because I I can't uh, I can't uh, 
feel comfortable with, with doing this or asking others to do this. And then that's their choice. And they won't be dishonored. They wouldn't be sort of cashiered or thrown out. They, would, they wouldn't be given a dishonorable discharge. They would be, okay, well, sadhu anamodana, thank you very much. And yeah, we'll, uh, we'll uh, help you along your way. So that, that was a real set, set of eye-openers uh, for me along the way. And I, I, uh, I certainly I don't support militarism for its own sake. But I also recognize that in this country, you know, we, uh, we're not a Buddhist nation. <laughs> and uh, so we don't have to the, the sort of the quandaries of, well, how do you run a government on Buddhist principles yet? <laughs> I don't think there are any, even any Buddhist MPs, but there's certainly there's a certain amount of influence. I mean, if they've got John Kabat-Zinn at number 10, you know, there's, there's influences are trickling in. So it'll be a few decades yet before we have these moral dilemmas as a country as to you know, how we should function in terms of military action or, or running a, a, an army. But I feel it's it, there's a difference between twi tw twisting the philosophy and saying, no, the Buddha's teaching justifies killing. It's like, no. <laughs> you know, any, any soldier in the Thai army or the Thai navy or air force you know, they know if they're, if they're pulling that trigger, that's breaking the precept. There's no kind of fudging. They know that. But they also know, well, I've undertaken to do this as a service to the country um, for this time, and so this is part of the job, and so it's a painful sacrifice on my part, uh, uh, but I, I've taken on the job, I'm under orders, I have to obey orders. If I wish to not take orders anymore, I have to go and talk to my superior officer. <laughs> And then that's that's the appropriate thing to do. So, so that say on an idealistic level it might not work, but if you look at it on a personal basis, a personal level, you can see okay, that's that no no individual is ever compelled to um, to uh, act in a way that goes against their their principles, and that uh, in a way it's also important to understand that. If you look at the Pali Canon, you never find anywhere where the Buddha says to a ruler, you shouldn't have an army. Never to King Prasenadi or, or, or King um, Bimbisara or to the Vajian Confederacy, whether it's a republic or a monarchy or anything. The Buddha never says, uh, you should disband your army. He, uh, he never say, uh, you know, he'll point out the benefits of respecting life <laughs> and uh, the, the, down, you know, the downside of... of um, you know the um, uh, of military you know, military expansionism such like but he never he never says you know you should uh you should be like me but he also created his own peace army <laughs> you know, he created the the monastic order so that if you do want to step out of that then you can like the the a, a huge proportion of the initial uh, group of, of monks were kshatriyas they were warrior nobles the buddha was like was a a a, a, a soldier if you look at his teachings, there's military analogies all the way through, military language all the way through. You know, his, one of his epithets was Jina, the conqueror. You know, the, when you, we, the most serious rules uh, for, the, for the monastics are called parajika, they're defeat. Like if, you break, if, I, like if I, I, I cause a person to die, or if I steal something, I'm parajika. I'm no longer a monk. That, and parajika means defeated. It's a military term. So the Buddha had a big military background of his own. <laughs> so he didn't say to the to the kings like you shouldn't have a, an army. You know you should you should all be uh, sort of uh, uh, committed to the first precept. Uh, if you want to be my my follower, my supporter, 
said, no, he, he left them to make their own decisions. He said, this is the benefits of harmlessness. <laughs> Here's the benefits of respect and compassion for all beings. You know, here is my own peace army that you can join if you like. Um, but you're free to make your own choices and to, to run your country as you see fit. And I think that's an important principle that is also not really uh, recognized. That um, uh, It wasn't as though the Buddha was secretly condoning militarism, he was, but he was being pragmatic. Also, it's like, it's not up to me. You know, they aren't asking me to run the country, and he's deliberately choosing to not take responsibility for running his country. But instead, he's, he, he said, well, I'll just create an alternative, having his own peace corps, the, of the monastic order. So, so if you want to step out of that, you can. You can be uh, uh, living a life totally committed to harmlessness. That's possible. And, uh, and, and with the support and respect of the society for that. But if you, uh, if you wish to carry on, if you see a value and you're comfortable with, with living a, a, in, a, in a military mode, then that's your choice. It's up to you. But also, he never says... Well, it's not really killing if it's in the, if you're a Sakyan, you know. <laughs> if you're killing the Vajians, it's all right. You know, they're not really, they're not really people. If they're the enemy, they don't count. So, no, there's absolutely not a syllable in the Pali Canon that that justifies that at all. And anybody who's who uh, says that, like you know, um, the when people would say, and, then, and this did happen in in Thailand along the way, that one, one monk said, oh, killing communists is not against the first precept. Yeah. He got landed upon like a ton of bricks. I mean, even though they did have a lot of problems with communist insurgency, he was thoroughly scolded <laughs> from many sides. But no, you can't qualify that at all in terms of Dhamma. And so it might seem like it's kind of fudging the picture, but I, I feel it's it's important to reflect upon those areas and to consider, well, how does this work? And uh, you are... Uh, and just maybe the last thing to say, uh, just, it's already gone past four o'clock, but um, I think it's important to broaden the perspective and not to think in, in monochromatic terms. A number of years ago, I had a, a, um, uh, a strange illness. I got a, a, a swelling in my neck uh, and it turned out to be a, a lymph gland that had died. Anyway, the, 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 the best hospital around here is the RAF Halton Hospital. Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 the GP uh, that I went to and various other people couldn't figure out what was wrong with my neck because of strange swelling that was behaving in all sorts of weird ways. It wasn't going away. And so they, I got, the, um, the net result was to refer me to RAF Halton to, for surgery. So I went to this Air Force hospital right in, in Halton Air Base, just nearby here. And the consultant was this, I mean, he was straight out of, an, uh, of, a, of a kind of classic English movie. Little sort of toothbrush myself. Well, old chap. Well, old chap, it's rather mysterious what we've got going on here. And I think there's, there's really got two options we can play with. We can either open it up and see what's inside or leave it and see if it'll go away. <laughs> so, uh, so, old boy, what would you like us to do? I'm not kidding. That was exactly that's exactly how he spoke. It was hilarious. And I said, "Well, well, actually, uh, I almost called him sir, you know. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'd rather like you to open it up because it's been there for a few months." And then... anyway, so I was recovering from the surgery and was waiting for the monastery van to come and pick me up. And there was this very dignified old gentleman that I'd seen around in the in the ward a few times. 
And uh, I was sitting down, the, the, the van from, the, from Amravati didn't show up. And then this, this fellow came up to me, he's very tall, came with a toothbrush moustache. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> you know, white-haired, dignified old gent, he said, excuse me, do you mind if I chat with you for a while? I said, sure, please sit down. And we'd spoke for about three hours. <laughs> and the, 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 the van just, for some reason, they, they got the wrong time. And says so he and I sat together in the in the the lounge of the of the hospital together, just talking. And he was uh, Air Chief Marshal Constantine, and he would be the second in command of the RAF. And uh, he had uh, flown uh, and uh, organized and flown a thousand bombing raids over Germany during the war, including the raid on Dresden. And so he he told me his you know, he came up and he wanted to talk and he told me his life story. And it, was, it had a very powerful effect on me because he said that the reason why he joined the RAF was because he came from a poor family and he wanted to see the world. And the easiest way to see the world was to learn how to fly. And the way you got to learn how to fly if you had no money was you joined the RAF. And he said he was so clueless that when he joined this, the, the, this fighter squadron, he went to his, his uh, senior officer and said, Sir, we're in this fighter squadron, but I'm wondering who the enemy is supposed to be. This is back in the 30s. And, and uh, of course, he hadn't had a war with the French for a while, so he said, the French, of course, silly boy. You know, bound to have a war with the French soon. He said he didn't have a clue about you know, the global picture or anything. Then the Second World War began, and he had a lot of natural aptitude for leadership, so he got promoted very, very quickly, and he was the youngest air vice marshal. Uh, he was like an air vice marshal by the time he was 34, 35 years old. And he was in bomber command. And you know, each step along the way, each increment made sense. And basically, he just was swept into this, and he had natural leadership abilities. And the next thing he knew, he was uh, he was um, organizing all these raids, these huge raids, like, like a thousand, up to a thousand bombers over Germany. And including the raid on Dresden, he said he, he said, I know it's had, it's had a lot of criticism over the years, and people have spoken about that, you know, and it was a terrible thing. But he said, you know, that that raid happened because. I got a telegram from number 10 Downing Street that just said, Dresden, maximum impact. That was it. Three words. Well, Dresden, stop. Maximum impact, stop. That was the orders. And so um, he said, so you're in, the, you're in the war and you make those choices and that's how that happened. And then he said, what happened then after the war? He was... He was way too young to have so many stripes, so they started taking stripes off him again, <laughs> demoted him. But he was still in the Air Force. They didn't know what to do with him because he was he was good as a <laughs> in a war situation, but yeah, outside of that, he was you know, heavily over over promoted. So he uh, he said, "I took a plane and I went to visit. I flew to every place that I'd bombed. I went to visit every single city that I'd bombed during the 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 war." And that took two years. He said, at the end of that time, I made this vow that I would dedicate the rest of my life to making sure this never happened again. And uh, so this all unfolded over a sort of three-hour conversation. And uh, I felt quite uh, amazed. I mean, also, he sort of had come up to talk to this strange young bloke in a brown sheet with a shaved head. <laughs> he didn't know who I was or where I came from. But, but it was a very strange, mysterious encounter. And it had a very profound effect on me because uh, I went away from that thinking, well, all of my sort of habitual judgments about military people as being sort of um, uh, <coughs> you know, homicidal maniacs, 
No. He was just a, a, a bright young bloke who got swept up in a flow of circumstance and just each step made sense and the next thing he knew he was firebombing Dresden. And, uh, but also the fact he was, he was ready on an internal level to take responsibility and to try and turn it around. So he, um, he joined NATO and um, at that point it was, he said, this is, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that this is the longest period in European history ever, kind of since the Ice Age, that there's been uh, no war in, in Europe since that would have been from um, the, uh, <coughs> the end of the Second World War to the, to the mid-80s. He said he was very, very pleased that they managed to stabilize things through, uh, through some of their efforts. I mean, obviously, it's a multi-dimensional issue, but uh, I, I, I realize you can't just think in these these uh, simplistic ways, and that, uh, and even though he obviously was responsible for killing a lot of people, which I wouldn't condone one iota, but you also realize you can't just say he's a homicidal maniac or an evil person that uh, you see that there's there's a flow of circumstance in the way that things take shape that that uh you know that the good qualities that are there in a person <clears throat> get buried or get overridden by the 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 uh, the flow of, of circumstance and that also when he, he sort of came out of it that he also he tried to make sense of it and then also tried to use what energy he had to make a, a beneficial difference so i felt well I, I don't envy your life, but good, you know, good for you that, that you uh, have made these efforts these last 40 years to, to try and turn it around. And also the very fact that he come up to talk to me. That that was, he wasn't just sitting back, you know, sloshing gin and tonics and, you know, chatting with the consultants, <laughs> you know. He'd actually come up to talk to this, this religious weirdo sitting in the lounge and, and wanted to connect on a spiritual level. And so I felt it was very important to respect that in him, which wanted to uh, to talk to me. And that was also, in a way, echoed his recognition of those spiritual qualities inside himself. So, anyway, that was a long answer, but I felt uh, good to share with you so that um, it's a, uh, a mindfulness is a very broad issue. <laughs> and that I think the more that we can, say, take in and include not just our personal, um, so the, the breadth of our own personal world, but the, the breadth of social issues and living as a culture, as well as our own individual actions, then we're, it's much more able to inform how we live, how we relate, and how and the example that we give to others, you know, with, with what we do and the choices that we make, that, that has a, you know, a big effect. So I'll leave it there for this week, and wish you all well. <laughs>